let me begin with this, see if any of these are familiar to you. Long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, or this one, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Or there's this one, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Or this one, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. These are some of the opening lines of stories that have captured our attention and imagination for many, many years. We humans love stories. We're wired up to listen to them, wired up to respond to them and some of them stick with us. I still have vivid memories of childhood and summer holidays lying in the sand dunes of the south coast of New South Wales as my dad read Lord of the Rings to us. Stories filled with great journeys and amazing characters and wonderful adventures. Well, our God who speaks to us today by his word is a great storyteller. And as we turn the page to the story of Ruth, we come to one of his best, if I'm allowed to say that. It's a true story. And if we were to sum it up in one sentence, it would be this. Ruth is the story of going away and coming back. And really that shouldn't surprise us because to my mind God is a bit like John Grisham. Uh, there's not a quote you'll hear very often. John, uh, John Grisham, uh, who every time he goes to write a new story, ends up writing the exact same story. <laughs> and uh, really all the way through the Bible God tells stories of going away and coming back. It's the story of Abraham who in a time of famine goes away from the land that God has given him to Egypt. And uh, through a series of misadventures, eventually he returns. There's Jacob who steals his brother's birthright and runs away and eventually comes back. And in one sense, the, the whole of the Old Testament is the story of God's people Israel going away from their God and then being sent away. And then by God's mercy, some of them came back. And perhaps the greatest going away and coming back story is the story of the lost son who left his father's house, his father's love and wealth and wasted his life in a far off country. But in the end he came back. There is a sense in which the whole Bible is one long going away and coming back story. The story of how we all have gone away from our God gone away from his ways and yet through Jesus God has made a way to bring us back. And so come with me to this simple story of going away and coming back, the story of Ruth which begins in verse 1 as a story of going away. In the very first verse the scene is set for us. There's a family and they're living in the land of Judah we're told in the days the judges ruled. And even here we're being told a great deal about them. If you have your Bibles open, uh, just a, a page back from uh, the page we're looking at, uh, the last verse of the previous book of the Bible, uh, Judges. The book of Judges, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, will describe the days that this family lives in. In those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. These are days when God's people refused to submit to God as king. These are days when I do as I please. These are days of self-determined living, days just like ours. And while the last verse of Judges sums up those days very simply, those who first heard that story, the story of Ruth, would know just how dark those days really were, how they were days of great sadness, days of evil. 
And what this story does for us is it goes from the national level and it zooms in on one little family trying to live in days like that. A family who we're told here in the opening verses decides to leave Bethlehem. And as we read on, it's hard to blame them. I mean, what would you do? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A famine has gripped Bethlehem, has gripped Judah and given what we know of these days, it's not a surprise. God had said to his people in Judah, he said, if you stray from my ways, if you turn away from my blessings, then the heavens will become like brass and the earth like iron and a famine will sweep through this land. Here in the days of no king, of rejecting God's ways, of doing as I please, here is a sign from God, the famine, a sign saying, wrong way, go back. A sign that is meant to tell the people of Bethlehem something is seriously awry. Now, Bethlehem itself is a name that means the house of bread. Well, the house of bread was empty. Something was wrong. This was God's megaphone to his people saying, turn back to me. And we, I think, living in similar days, are meant to pick up the same signs in our world. Signs that tell us that things are pretty far from okay. Uh, we see these signs on a global level, whether, whether it be the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico that we seem powerless to stop. Or on a national level. Uh, England perhaps is not at risk of drought or famine. But our lack in recent times has been financial. And even a change of government doesn't change that. There are moments uh, as well uh, as we've had in Cumbria in recent weeks as a lone gunman rips the heart out of a community, an act that says to us, surely something is not right. And then there's the personal. You live long enough in this world and you will know just how broken it is. And sometimes the fractures, the brokenness of this world gets far too close Sometimes it touches us and we're left realising how far from okay things really are. I wonder, as you look around this world or even just look around your own life, do you see the signs that say something's not right? I reckon it's easy, especially on the, the larger level, to sort of just get used to it. It's just the way things are. To miss the sign. But here's the thing. It's not okay truth is you were meant to live forever. You were never meant to get sick. You were never meant to bury anyone you love. You were never meant to shed tears except for joy or perhaps laughter. You were never meant to uh, have your heart broken at the circumstances you or others faced. That was never meant to happen. You were never meant to be afraid. You were never meant to die. It's not normal. Each sign we see like this shouts at us, like the famine did to this family, it's not okay, come back to your God. But watch this family. They see the sign to return to God and they do the opposite. They went away to Moab. And what makes this decision so tragic is what we're told in verse 2 as we begin to get to know this family. In a time when people are pretending there is no king, here is a family that knows there is. The husband of this family, his name is Elimelech, a name meaning my God is king. Here is a family that knows there is a king who is sovereign even in these dark days. Yahweh is my king is his name. 
But as troubles come, he leads his family away from his king, seeking help elsewhere. And I reckon we're meant to feel the weight of this. Here is a man, uh, here is a family who, who knows God as king, who would be with us this morning. Here is a family who would sing with gusto as we have just done, give thanks to the Lord, our God and king, who is forever faithful, forever strong, Here is a man who wears that name, my God is king, and yet when days of distress come, when days of lack, when fear builds, that name peels off like a name tag. When trouble comes, he runs, and not to his God, but away. Do you feel the weight of this? Especially uh, the husbands here, especially dads on this Father's Day. Let me ask you this. When pressure comes to provide, where do you run? When fear grows about your future or the future of your family, your children or your elderly parents or whatever it might be, where do you go for help? As stress grows or responsibility or conflict grows, where do you go? And in those moments of great sadness, his family away, away from the one place that God has promised blessing. He has his reasons, reasons that I suspect are better than many of those that we muster for the same decision. The decision as our child reaches their final years of school and we counsel them that perhaps just for a season, just for a time, you curb your uh, fellowship with other Christians. Perhaps we cut out evening church. Perhaps we cut out the small group. Perhaps just for this year we focus on single-minded pursuit of academic success. It's only a year and you can do what you want. One year away from the Lord. Or rather than building my wife up in Christ, I make it my ambition to build the house we've always wanted. A task that will take all my energy, that will leave me with no energy left for other building projects like building her soul, her eternity. Or as work and home life gets more intense and my roles there become more significant and more pressured, something has to give. So I keep the squash and drop the small group. It's what keeps me sane. Elimelech packs his bags and leads his family away to Moab. Just for a while, we're told here in verse 1, just for a while. But by verse 4, they've been there for 10 years. They went to Moab in search of rescue, of provision, of safety, but soon that short-term gain gives way to horrific loss. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died And then she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they'd lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Here's the question. Why did Elimelech go to Moab in the first place? Surely it was so his family wouldn't die. And yet... Death still reigns in Moab as it does in Bethlehem. Here is the the tragic folly of living as if there is no king, as if you are the master of your own destiny. That works until you come up against something you can't control. When death comes to this family, it takes everything. Living as if you are your own king sounds good until you come up against something like death and then you want a king, then you need a king. 
then the decision to go away from him is folly. Moab is a land that promised much but delivered very little when rescue was really needed. And by verse 5, Naomi is the woman who is without. Or as Ephesians 2 would put it, without God and without hope in the world. This is a story of going away. But it's also a story of coming back. Do you see it there in verse 6? Do you see what brings Naomi back uh, with what's left of her family, her two daughters-in-law? She hears news, good news from Bethlehem. News that God has visited his people, he has rescued, he has provided for them. And yet even at this point there's a great distance. Uh, She's still far off, she's in a field in Moab. All this blessing, all this rescue is way over there. And yet in spite of the distance, as she hears this news, she wants to go back just like the prodigal son. The son who remembered in a far off country the abundance of his father's house. Well, she and her daughter-in-law set the course for home. And as they begin, notice how Naomi returns. Firstly, all the way through this chapter, she seems to expect very little from God upon return. There's a sense, in fact, all the way through the chapter that she thinks God is angry with her and rightly so, perhaps. God may give her food, he he may provide her basic needs, but that's about as far as his kindness will stretch. There's no real future for her. Now look at the way she speaks to her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, in verses 8 and 9. She says, this is the way God works. This is the way his kindness works. Uh, You've been kind to me, And so he might be kind to you. It's quid pro quo. It's uh, what you give is what you get. But not me. I can't expect anything. And so like the prodigal son again, she goes back expecting very little. But secondly, she also comes back bitter. Did you hear that word repeated all the way through the chapter? You see it there in verse 13 and verse 20. Her life, uh, racked with loss as it is, is full of bitterness. And what does all this bitterness amount to? Verse 21, she is empty. And not just physically. Do you see there in verse 21 she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means sweet and pleasant. Don't call me that. That's not who I am anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Call me empty because that's who I am. And such is her emptiness that she tries to convince the daughters who have gone back with her to abandon their return. In verse 11 to 13 she says, If you follow me you need to know that nothing lies there for you. There are no sons, uh, there are no husbands, there is nothing. All that remains for us is a blank page. And not the one you get at the start of a story, the one they stick at the end of a story that says this story is over, the end. This family is over, go back home. And verse 15, her plea is successful at least in part. Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, returns, we're told, to her people and her gods. Can you imagine it? That moment, standing there on the borderline, they've, they've made their way through Moab, they're just about to enter Judah, on the way to Bethlehem, and they've heard this news of God visiting, that he has provided for his people. What do you do? Do you go there and see if perhaps there is something there for you, or, or are you with Orpah? What if the God of Bethlehem is just a mirage? I mean, our world is full of false hopes. This is high-stakes stuff. Orpah would be losing her land, her people, her gods that she relied on. Yes, they haven't helped her, but better the devil you know, surely. 
or standing there on the borderline, that's the choice before them. And I suspect that there are some here who have that same choice before them today. The heart of the Christian gospel says this. It says that God has seen the plight of our broken world and he has visited Bethlehem. Visited that very first Christmas as his son, Jesus, was born as a baby who grew up to die on a cross to rescue, to provide a way back. A a way back where there is forgiveness, where there is blessing, where there is hope. And for some here who have heard the news of the God of Bethlehem, who heard what he grew up to do, that choice lies before you. Do you go and see him and see if uh, maybe there is something there for you or are you with Orpah? I mean, a choice seems logical, doesn't it? Naomi's story is over. Why go with her? But if you are following Orpah's logic, there's something you should know about this story. In fact, something you should know about your story. God is in charge of this story and he says there is more to be written. Where the human story runs out of words, runs out of answers, that's where God is just beginning. And so follow the story just for a little longer and see what happens when God takes charge of the script. Verse 14, Ruth, instead of choosing to return back to Moab, chooses to cling to Naomi, cling to the hope that there is something there for her in Bethlehem. She commits herself not just to Naomi but to Naomi's God. You see it there, verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Naomi has painted the bleakest, blackest possible future for Ruth and yet Ruth takes Naomi's hand and says, let's go. And the more you ponder her words, the more amazing they really are. She is leaving her own family and land. She is accepting, at this stage, widowhood and childlessness. She knows nothing of what God has planned. She's 25, maybe 30 years old and she says, that's it, sign me up. And they're not just words of human commitment but commitment to this God of Bethlehem. Your God will be my God, she says. Amazing. What does she know of Naomi's God? Well, not much from Naomi but perhaps in these 10 years, perhaps she's heard from this family of their God, heard of his love, heard of his promises. Could it be that she's heard a promise like we see in Leviticus 26 where God says this, I will stay with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I suspect so because they are the very words she uses now in verse 16 and 17. Here is a God she has found who promises love, who promises his presence, who promises never to leave or forsake her. And so Ruth stands there on the borderline and she counts the cost and she says, I'm clinging to him. And I want to hold us here just for one moment longer. I want you to see just how amazing her words really are. Verse 17, she says, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything, and it should be translated, if anything, even death, separates you and me. Even death. See her vow here, uh, uh, these verses are often used in a, in a wedding service uh, for, for the, the reading but her vow here is stronger than anything you'd ever find in a marriage vow. 
Now, I love being married. I'll be married 10 years in December and, God willing, many more years to come. And looking at the future with Liz, there's much we don't know about the future, much that's uncertain like all of us. But in my mind, if she's there, I'm in. But there will come a time when even she can't come with me. The promise we made 10 years ago says this, till death do us part. It's a promise I made easily and joyfully 10 years ago, but if ever death did us part, it would be a promise that weighed very heavily. But do you see Ruth's words here? May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything, even death, separates us. Do you know why she's so bold, so certain? Because she is binding herself to a God who makes just as strong a promise to her. The God of Bethlehem says to any who would trust him, I promise you this, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from my love. And so Ruth makes the logical choice. In these days where there is no king, she says, Elimelech, my God is king, even over death. I'm with him, Elimelech. And so she clings to him. In chapter 2, her decision will be described this way, I have taken shelter under his wing. Can you think of a better place to go when troubles come? Well, as we close, in the final verses, we see these two women finally arrive in Bethlehem. And as they do, let me ask this. What hope do you think there is for prodigals, for those who come back? What hope is there for someone like Ruth who essentially has burnt the ship, she's burnt all other options, I'm going this way, even though she has no real uh, reason to claim a right to these promises that are God's people's alone? Or what of Naomi? Perhaps you're more like her this morning, expecting so very little, heart filled with sadness, with only the faintest flicker of faith. What hope? Well, none if we write the story. But this is God's story. And to understand his story, you need to understand the way his grace works. You see, for many, uh, this is how it was once described to me, many people see God's grace as something he dispenses with an eyedropper. He's only just got a little bit of it to go around, so he dips a bit here and there. He's uh, very stingy, very careful with it, only if you really deserve it. But the truth is, as we will see in these coming weeks in this story, God dispenses his grace from a fire hose. He is prodigal with it, wasteful, abundant, excessive. But Naomi can't see it yet. And yet, even with so very little faith in this kindness, she comes back with a simple confession in verse 21. Three words, I went away. There's nothing here regarding the famine. It's not, I went away because there was a famine. What what, would you expect me to do? Or I went away because Elimelech was in charge. He told us to go and we, we followed. Now, there's no excuses. She's beyond all that. I went away. I went to the place where I was a stranger to God. I went away from his blessing. I went to where there was only brokenness. I went away. Now, I reckon this process of going away from God happens in thousands of ways. It can happen when we're young and full of life. It can happen in middle age when the pressures and regrets build. It can even happen in old age. 
And I suspect it can happen even here within our church family. There will be those here for whom Isaiah's words are true. You honour me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. I went away. It hardly ever happens quickly. It is a journey of a thousand decisions, each with an excuse. But in this story, God says, don't bother with excuses, just come back. Come back because you have heard the news of the God of Bethlehem, the God who has visited this world with rescue, with provision, the God who calls you back. There's a great prayer that we use often in our communion services after we have shared communion together which says this, Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your son and brought us home. That's the news from Bethlehem. And notice what the return is like. You see there right at the end, verse 22, when they arrive. See what time it is? It's the beginning of harvest. It's the beginning of blessing. Just a hint of what's to come. Over the coming weeks, we're going to watch as this little hint of blessing grows and grows and grows into something of such dimensions that it will cover all heaven and earth. But for now, hear the story of one family and hear God's call. Come back. With only a flicker of faith and a small understanding of his grace, if that's all you have. Come back bitter if that's how you feel. Come back empty if that's where you're at. But come back with a simple confession on your lips. I went away, but the Lord has brought me back. Let's pray together.